Hello, I am Dr. Elizabeth Norton and I am an historian of the Tudors and I edited a collection of sources on Anne Boleyn a few years ago called the Anne Boleyn Papers. Welcome to May, or as we call it here on Royals, Rebels and Romantics, Anne Boleyn Month. I'm thrilled to have so many of my favorite historians joining me to talk about Anne Boleyn. Love her or hate her, it seems like we can't stop talking about her. And that's certainly true this month. Welcome, everyone. And I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Norton, who is a Tudor historian and is joining us in our month of celebrating Anne Boleyn. Dr. Norton has written many books, and I'm sure you've seen her on all kinds of television programs as well. Even here in the States, we get a few of them. So I'm just thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. I want to start with one of my favorite of your books, the one you edited, the Anne Boleyn Papers. I love so much of what you do, but this is the book that it's just, it's so full of sticky notes and um, pages turned down. It's its just my go-to. So if we could just talk about that for a moment, what inspired you to make this collection of resources by Anne Boleyn, some of her letters, some of her recorded speeches, and also documents about her. What inspired you to bring all that together in this wonderful volume? Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, so it was it was a bit of a labor of love, love really. I was sort of inspired by my research. I obviously wrote a biography of Anne um, a few years before the source book. And actually, you sort of, you scratch around, you go and find your sources from different places. And it actually seemed like, although we have lots of biographies on Anne, what we don't necessarily have is easy access to some of the major sources for her life. And actually, I mean, to be honest, the sources that survive for her life do fit quite nicely into a volume. Um, you know, actually, there are a lot of gaps in her life, which I also sort of wanted to highlight. So it was really, I was motivated. I'm so thrilled to hear that your volume is full of post-it notes and sort of annotations <laughs> because that's the same as my copy. I mean, my copy I, I use all the time um, mm -hmm. in a way that I don't necessarily do about my other books. It's just really, really easy to have everything in the same place. And it's not everything on Anne. But I tried to yes. do a good range, and um, particularly letters, um, mm -hmm. the few that survive. Um, but I also tried to show the negative as well as the positive. So, you know, if someone's hostile to Anne, that goes in there too, just to try and make it sort of rounded and give us a sense of what there is about Anne. Well, and I find that really helpful, although I bristle and disagree with people who are negative <laughs> and awful. But I do find it helpful because these are contemporary or near contemporary sources. And I think it gives us a really good glimpse into how she was perceived at the time and in some ways sort of what she was up against or what her friends who survived her were sort of up against and Elizabeth was up against her daughter in terms of this. So if we could talk just about 
one of the negative sources that's there. And just get your ideas and thoughts about the Nicholas Saunders source, which you do include in it. It it is just, I mean, it starts by saying that she couldn't possibly be Thomas Boleyn's daughter. I mean, (laughs) really starts with the jugular. So tell us a little bit about that source and what it's like, why it's so important. So Nicholas Sander, um, I'm sure if you have read the source or even seen extracts of it, hated Anne Boleyn, um, absolutely loathed her. He's actually writing in the reign of her daughter, Elizabeth. So really, I mean, really, he hates Elizabeth. He's a Jesuit. Um, so on the other side of the religious spectrum, um, really, really dislikes and it uses her as a way to get at Elizabeth. And it's, I mean, it's unrelentingly negative. I mean, as you say, it starts by saying she's not Thomas Boleyn's daughter. It actually implies that she's Henry VIII's daughter, which is <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, about as low a blow as you can go, really. And of course, completely false. I mean, there is just no way that she's Henry VIII's daughter. I mean, he's probably only about 10 when she's born anyway, although the birth date is disputed. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just absolutely full. I mean, you know, as far as Sandra is concerned, Anne was hideously ugly. Um, she has lovers. Um, she's just, you know, I mean, he's contradictory as well, because of course, I mean, if she's as hideously ugly as he implies, she's probably not going to have all these lovers and attract the king, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so it's really prejudicial. What's interesting is it does get used, um, even though, I mean, it's obviously highly suspect um for example sort of claims about her final miscarriage being a shapeless mass of flesh um come from this if you can call it a source so it is influential and it has been influential so you know actually it had to go in albeit and I hope I make it clear in the introduction to the source that you know actually (laughs) I it's it's not my it's not my thing you know I've, I've fundamentally disagree with Nicholas Sanders' portrayal of Anne. But I also think it acts as quite a neat counterweight to the portrayal of Anne by George Wyatt, which is also mm-hmm. in there. Um, and he's Anne's first re- real full biographer. Um, he's a grandson of her m- admirer, Thomas Wyatt. He's interviewed people that knew Anne. And he provides a really favourable biography. But actually, it's not contemporary either. So I think having the two in together does give you a sense of you know sort of what we are up against and you know already within a few decades of her death you get these polarizing views well and that's interesting because that has somehow continued and so you have this group where they're painting her with extra fingers and extra toes and you know all kinds of things and then people who think that she's a saint so uh, you know you get both of these ideas why do you think she was so quickly such a polarizing figure? And and these two examples are wonderful. And I'm so glad they're right next to each other in the book, because it really does give you that sense of here's how some people felt and here's how other people felt. Why do you think she was so polarizing right from the start? I mean, I think she was polarizing in her lifetime. Um, mm. I mean, fundamentally, she was a hugely controversial figure. I always try to think of Anne as more of a politician. So I, it, to my mind, Anne is, is more Thomas Cromwell than necessarily Jane Seymour, for example, or, you know, Catherine Howard later down the line of wives. She, she is very, very political. She drives policy. Um, yes, she marries the king. Um, you know, she has a love affair with the king, but in many respects, that's because that's actually the only route to pol- political power that's open to women in the period. But she, 
she changed things. And I think that is what makes her so controversial. And she was controversial as soon as her relationship with Henry was known. And of course, partly that's because of sympathy for Catherine of Aragon and Princess mm-hmm. Mary. Mm-hmm. And Anne does behave badly to Catherine and Mary. I mean, again, this is when I try and present her as sort of a, a real woman. I think, you know, I, I am definitely an Anne fan. But there are times when she does things and you just think, whew, that was unpleasant. <laughs> right. um, and I think, but I think everybody does that really. You know, I mean, I, there have been moments in my life where actually I've been really horrible to people and, you know, you sort of think, mm. so I think, again, right. it sort of presents you as a, a well-rounded person. Um, but yeah, so I think the, because she changed things so dramatically, I mean, she sets England on the path to the Reformation not necessarily at that stage of Protestant Reformation, but certainly we've got the break with Rome and we've got the changes in the church. And that's quite a large extent due to Anne Boleyn. Um, Certainly, on the one hand, it's due to her because obviously she is the reason why Henry breaks with Rome, but also she's pushing him towards that solution, along with Thomas Cranmer, along with Thomas Cromwell. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people dislike Anne for her rise and you know, the fact that she rose so far. And I think we get that from the moment she appears politically. And it just continues. Um, Being executed for adultery and incest is always going to be a difficult one to rehabilitate. And of course, we know she didn't do it. But Mm -hmm. and I mean, her contemporaries largely knew she didn't do it. But you know, the stain is still there. Um, Elizabeth doesn't speak publicly about Anne Boleyn, for example. And and largely it's because actually, she's the daughter of an adulteress and and a woman who's been convicted of incest. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, It's a difficult one to rehabilitate. Right. Yes. And it is the question of Elizabeth and how Elizabeth deals with her parents' marriage very differently. When Mary becomes queen, she has her parents' marriage put back on the books and Elizabeth doesn't, you know, go there. It's a really interesting, you know, because Elizabeth is faced with some of this. That's that's really so great. And I love the way you talk about her as a politician and as someone who is making changes, which is not true of all the wives. So she certainly does stand out for that way. As you were putting these sources together and, and you know, you've got the positive, you've got the negative, you're looking at some of her writing. Did your view of Anne change as you were assembling these sources? I think to some extent it did. I mean, this is a really interesting question. I think to some extent it did. I mean, I'd obviously already written a biography of her, but I think having the sources together sort of in a broadly chronological order does kind of help focus the mind just on Anne. I think it was very important for kind of, because there's a lot of legend about Anne's Mm -hmm. story, you know, um, things get built on and built on. And when you actually look back to the original source, actually it's, it's, it's very little, um, you know, very little has been used to build quite a big picture because we do have enormous gaps in Anne Boleyn's life. Mm-hmm. We don't know when she was born. We don't know where she was born. We can guess, but we don't know. Um, we don't know how she's educated. We we don't, you know, we don't know her relationship, particularly with her parents, too much. You know, actually, there are really, really big gaps in her life. We don't know what she's doing in France. Um, we can guess that she's at the field of the cloth of gold, but actually, she's not recorded there. Um, mm-hmm. So, I think in some ways, the source book lays bare 
that there are big gaps in her life. And I think that in some respects changed my view of her. And that, you know, actually I presented her in a biography and sort of filled in the gaps as you do by interpretation. But I think to see the sources just laid bare really does bring home just how little we do know about periods of Anne's life. I'd like to know more. I'm hoping more is discovered. Right. Yes. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It would be amazing. All all hoping. (laughs) All hoping. When you were putting all this together and you're maybe thinking of things a little bit differently, how did you do that research? How did you find or pull, pull together or decide what to include in this volume? So the starting point was to try and include everything. And of course, that's not possible. Right. Um, so you then have to edit. But by sort of starting with everything, you kind of gather everything in and think, you know, what can go where. And I tried not to be too selective. I mean, in fact, there's a letter in there that purports to be from Amber Lynn, which is about getting someone to feed her chickens at Hever when she's at court. And it's, I mean, it's so ridiculously, mm-hmm. obviously an 18th century forgery. But I, th- uh-huh. you know, I thought, well, you know, it does claim to be from Amberlynn, let's put it in and explain why it's it's dubious because actually there are other letters which are believed to be written by Amberlynn or purported to be from Amberlynn which are also quite likely to be forgeries most mm-hmm. notably the Lady in the Tower letter which is still argued over today but it's certainly not a definite letter by Amberlynn so I really started with trying to get everything in and then I sort of cut so Chapuis dispatches, for example, um, I cut them down to the dispatches that relate to Anne as closely as possible because actually otherwise, I mean, they could fill several volumes. In. Right. He's the imperial ambassador and he he writes obviously all the politics of the day. He's writing to his master, the Emperor Charles. But a great deal of the information we have on Anne comes from his dispatches. And usually they're hostile. He really, really right. dislikes Anne. Um, but again, you know, he still provides us with a lot of detail. Um, obviously all her letters are in, um, the love letters from Henry VIII, which survive, sorry, yeah, the love letters from Henry VIII, which survive in the Vatican archives, they're all in as well. Um, but again, I mean, even letters, we have very few from Anne. Unfortunately, her replies to Henry don't survive. Do you think they are somewhere that those letters from Anne to Henry are squirreled away somewhere? Wouldn't that be fabulous? I would love them to exist. (laughs) I suspect, because of course they would have been held by Henry, I suspect they Mm -hmm. were destroyed in 1536. Mm -hmm. It's a great shame, but I I can't see them turning up. I would love it to be the other way. Um, I suspect that Henry's letters were stolen from Anne um, and possibly by Cardinal Campeggio, the papal legate, which is how they've ended up in the Vatican. Certainly Campeggio's luggage was searched when he got to Calais on his way home, which suggests that something Mm. may have been noticed as missing. But Mm. no, I can't see Anne's letters surviving, unfortunately. I would love to see them. (laughs) Yes, wouldn't that be great? Oh, that's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Now, recently, there have been a couple of discoveries in ongoing research about Anne. And so there have been the inscriptions that Kate McCaffrey um, found in the Book of Hours at Hever, and then also the falcon that is believed to have been Anne's and possibly at Hampton Court as part of her um, decor, decor there, part of her royal image there. So has anything that's come up recently changed your mind 
um, since the time you put the book together or or just in general? So, I mean, those two discoveries are wonderful. Um, I think, I mean, particularly Kate McCaffrey's work are, I mean, she's one of the, she's an assistant curator at Hever Castle, Anne Boleyn's Childhood Home. But I think her work has been really, really important to understanding how Anne was perceived because, of course, we talk about her being polarizing, um, mm-hmm. and the official line is, of course, you know, she's a she's a traitor. She's been condemned to death. But actually, um, Kate McCaffrey's work on the Book of Hours, using a UV pen, shows that the book was actually passed from Anne's ladies in waiting through female members of a family over generations. So it's obviously a treasured heirloom, which is really, really interesting, and suggests that privately she's not the negative figure that she is in public, which is really, really interesting. I mean, it's a wonderful piece of research and it's the first really new research on Anne herself, um, you know, to bring something really new to the table in the past few Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. The Falcon is wonderful um, because, of course, Henry attempted to destroy references to Anne in his buildings. You know, the Mm -hmm. glass windows with her coats of arms and her badges are removed and destroyed. Her initials are removed. And sometimes they miss things. So, you know, if you look up in Anne Boleyn's gateway at Hampton Court, you'll see plenty of Anne's badges. Or if you look closely at the altar screen in King's College Chapel, you'll see Henry and Anne's initials again. But in general, they're pretty thorough. So to have the Falcon return to Hampton Court is really wonderful. Um, I wish I'd found it. I think he spent, I think he bought it for £75 in an auction, which is a bit of a bargain, I would say. Right. Um, and then other than that, really, um, Lauren Mackay's work on Thomas Boleyn has been really, really important. And that came out in her book uh, two years ago, I think, um, Among mm-hmm. the Walls of Court. And that's really interesting to have a new take on Thomas. And certainly she goes a good way to rehabilitating him, I would say. Right. And I, I do love that it's as if people made him into a little bit of a monster somehow in Anne's story that he's just this cold calculating and her discussion of him is just really wonderful. And speaking of her and of course you as well, and it was at Hever. So let's talk a little bit about the Boleyns, a scandalous family, which (laughs) I managed to watch. You know, if you use TV Mundo and you're in the United States, you get one hour of TV per day. And that was my hour when that was on. So tell us a little bit about being involved in that project and some of the things you all, all as historians were attempting to do and what it was like to be in those spaces in Hever and and see people in those spaces. I know Dr. Owen Emerson talks about watching them ride in across the bridge on the horse and just imagining the Boleyns in those spaces. It was a fabulous project to be involved with. I was so thrilled. Um, I was one of the talking heads, so I appeared in the episodes, and I was also um, one of the consultants on the series. So it was a real honour to take part alongside some really great historians, such as Lauren Mackay, Owen Emerson, Nikki Clark. Um, so it was an absolute pleasure. And it's really the series, it tells the stories of the Berlins over three episodes. So it looks very closely at Thomas Boleyn and his rise and his career, as well as looking at the rise of Anne Boleyn. And of course, Mary Boleyn is there and George Boleyn, although he's quite a shadowy figure, unfortunately. Um, But what sort of the overarching plan of the series was to look again, really, because Thomas Boleyn is always portrayed, you know, as 
even in the in the period to some extent he was portrayed as he's called a board to his daughter so he's a pimp basically mm-hmm. he's pimping out his daughters to Henry VIII and that's traditionally how he's portrayed because of course Mary Boleyn is a mistress of the king and then we have Anne Boleyn and I mean particularly I'm um, with Lauren Mackay's work but also I mean I was very keen to kind of show the agency that Anne and Mary actually have in that, you know, if you're saying that they're just being pimped out to the king, to some extent, you're you're denying their agency anyway. You know, you're actually saying they've got no mm-hmm. say in this. Mm-hmm. And Anne particularly, we can see her acting and calculating and making decisions. I mean, I just, I cannot see her as a pawn of her father. And I think it's unfair on Thomas as well in that actually he is an important court official. He's an ambassador. He's a very clever man himself. And I think defining him just by his daughters is also to mislead and also Mm -hmm. to, you know, really sort of diminish his worth. So I was so thrilled with how the program came out because of course it has the dramatizations, as you say, at Heaver and the actors were all fabulous in it. So I really hope that it sort of brings out the story of the Berlins to viewers across the world. So I'm so thrilled that um, people in the US have been able to watch it. Right. Yeah, it is. It is wonderful. And I know a lot of my friends here in the US were just thrilled to be able to see it. And um, hopefully it's available everywhere. That focus on the family, how do you think that can change our understanding of Anne as a real person? Because that's one of the things I really get from the Anne Boleyn papers is this sense of a real woman involved in here. She's almost become such an icon or such a legend. We, I think, lose track of her being a real person who, yeah, made some really bad decisions and some good decisions and, and is a person making her own decisions. But as far as knowing the family better, how does that help us understand them and her during this amazing time in Henry VIII's court? I think it's really important because, as you say, these are real people. Um, And, of course, we know the end of the story. We know what happens to all of them, but they don't know that. Um, It's just their lives. And so seeing how she interacts with her family and how her family act are really important. And, I mean, I'm always struck with Anne's story, just how powerless they are in the end, in the face of the king's power. And that's, I think, is a really important take from the lives of Henry's English wives, particularly, is that they can have powerful families who can rise with them or independently of them. But ultimately, they are powerless in the face of the king. And again, I think in some respects, it shows Anne as a politician. You know, she is beheaded. Thomas Cromwell is beheaded by the king as well. Um you know, we have again. You know, if you if you rise through the politics of the day, there is a danger that you will fall. And Henry himself says to Anne, you know, he can humble her as soon as he raised her. He is the ultimate authority. But we can see her acting with her family, and we can see ambition. But mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be an ambition in every case. I mean, Henry is a very good-looking man when Mm -hmm. he first comes to Anne's attention. And there's no suggestion that, you know, she doesn't return his interest um, because she is human. And as you say, she makes a lot of mistakes um, very clearly. And of course, she ends up being beheaded. But a lot she does is right as well. Yes. And to, uh, you know, make that choice to play in the center of that court. And that was one of the things that was so fabulous in the Boleyns was, as you saw, literally them moving toward the center of that court, 
which was such a heady and exciting and dangerous place where all kinds of people, I mean, she was involved or at least on the, you know, very front row watching Woolsey's fall, who probably thought he was untouchable at, a, at one point. And so it's just such a dangerous place. Do you think the Boleyns knew what they were getting into and what kind of risk it was to play those kind of stakes? I think they did know. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk, think about the graphics on the Boleyns, for example, which obviously shows kind of the center and they move towards it, I always think in some respects they'd be better portrayed as a spider web with the king in the mm. center of the web, you know, and actually the closer you get, the more danger there is because everybody knew that the king had absolute power. I mean, he had power over every English man or woman's life if he wanted to. Um, he doesn't over foreigners. So, I mean, there's a reason why Catherine of Aragon and later Anne of Cleves are not in danger of their lives. And it's simply because you know, they have a powerful foreign family. But right. the English wives, the English courtiers, they are completely at Henry's mercy. And when you're in favour, he can be very, very charming. and He can be very, very generous. But there is always a danger that he'll turn on you. And I think Anne and the Boleyns will have known this. I mean, there's a quote from Anne Boleyn where she says you know there's a prophecy that and I'm obviously paraphrasing but there's mm -hmm. a prophecy that a queen will be burned and you know she basically says you know I would still do it I'll still do it um and I think she means that I think Anne is prepared to play the game for high stakes and of course she doesn't think that she'll lose but right. she must have known that there was a possibility that she would lose Okay. Yes. If, if she was certainly smart enough to see that. All right. So if we could, let's just play fantasy for a moment. If we could wave a magic wand and you could ask Anne herself a couple of questions, have her for tea and ask her a couple of questions, what would you most want to know? Well, Firstly, just to clear it up, I want to know what her birth date is, um, because <laughs> historians have argued for centuries over when Anne Boleyn was born. Um, I think 1501. Um, others will make a case for 1507. I'd like to sit her down and just say, can you just write down the day that you were born, please? And we'll, <laughs> we'll send that around and we'll end that one. Um, but sort of to go deeper, I think I'd like to know, I'd like to know what her opinion of Henry is. Um, at, at all stages of the relationship, because of course, you know, it's going to change over time, but you know, what does she think of Henry VIII when he first starts to um, try to persuade her to be his mistress and then his wife? And what does she think of him towards the end of the marriage? You know, is there still love? Was there ever love? I'd really like to know that. And again, it's sort of, I'd just like to see inside her head to some extent. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. And Yes. Are you motivated by love? And then it's a bit of a different story. So that's wonderful. Now, if, okay, so imagining you could ask her these questions, if there was one time that she could have made a difference, so if you were going to give her advice, if you were to do it all over again, Anne, if you could give her advice, what is one thing that you might suggest to her, do this differently? So, you know, we've talked about she made some mistakes. What is one mistake that you think, oh, if you'd just done this a little differently, it might have played out differently? I mean, it, it is really difficult because, I mean, her fundamental mistake is that she doesn't give birth to a son. 
Um, right. And of course, that's not a mistake. You know, yeah, you can't yeah. you can't help that. <laughs> um, but if Elizabeth had been a boy, mm-hmm. Anne would never have been beheaded. She may have she may have had a difficult relationship with Henry. Um, they may have lived largely separate lives, but she never would have been removed as queen, and she certainly wouldn't have been executed. So that is that's a fundamental thing. But actually, mm-hmm. of course, that's not her fault. Right. Um, and her fall, we all know she's innocent. I mean, it, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's really, really clear. Um, I think perhaps she could have been a bit more circumspect in her dealings with men because actually the games of courtly love that she plays were very much twisted to provide the evidence against her. But I think that actually the evidence would have been found anyway because the evidence is largely manufactured. Um, she certainly brings Francis Weston's name into it by talking about a discussion that they've had. And he actually hadn't been arrested before Anne mentioned his name. Um, so that's a mistake. But I think mm-hmm. really fundamentally she does make mistakes, but there's not really one that I can see that would have prevented her death because she's simply, she's inconvenient to Henry. He's tired of her and she hasn't given him a son. So really, I think the moment for Anne is right the way back in 1527, when Henry asks her to marry him, don't send him an acceptance and a gift of a maiden in a storm tossed (laughs) ship. Just run, run, go back to France. (laughs) Yes, 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 yeah, it, it will and not the way you think it's going to end. Um, those are really good comments because, of course, she couldn't help not having a son. But the the way courtly love and that plays out, and she's playing the game everybody else is playing, but it's twisted against her. So that is really interesting. Now, if you're thinking back, if you imagine Elizabeth becoming queen against all odds, I think, but when Elizabeth becomes queen and begins this reign and she has numerous challenges throughout her reign. What do you think she gains from being Anne Boleyn's daughter? I mean, what could she possibly have inherited from Anne Boleyn or, or how did Anne Boleyn show up in Elizabeth's reign in ways that helped Elizabeth? Because I think we do see, Catherine of Aragon, certainly in Mary's reign. And I think we can see Anne in Elizabeth's reign too. So what do you think of that? Do you think there are parts of Anne or attributes of Anne that show up in Elizabeth's reign? I think there are. I mean, it's doubtful that Elizabeth remembered Anne. Um, If she did, it's going to be sort of flashes of memory. Very, very little that she's going to know of Anne firsthand because of course she wasn't even three years old when her mother died. She's certainly had contact throughout her early life with people that knew Anne and are favourable to Anne as well. So it is very, very likely that she was given behind closed doors a favourable opinion of Anne, if you like. Mm -hmm. And it is very, very obvious that Elizabeth was fond of her mother and that she reveres her to some extent, albeit that it's it's in private because Anne is still a convicted adulteress. And um, we have the checkers ring, which is of course the yes. ring that Elizabeth wore and which contains two pictures, one of Elizabeth and one of a woman in a French hood, which is almost certainly Anne Boleyn. Um, mm-hmm. So it shows that she's thinking of her mother and her treatment of her mother's relatives throughout her reign shows again, you know, just how important the Boleyn side of the family are to her. And I think Anne does show up in Elizabeth. Um, 
they're often said to be quite facially similar and um, from the portraits that seems likely although obviously Anne's portraits are a bit a bit dicey in that um, there aren't too many that are actually contemporary um, mm -hmm. but I think she shows up in she's certainly important to Elizabeth in that Elizabeth is is just English and that is something she really plays upon and actually you know she is related to the nobility and the gentry through Anne Boleyn it gives her a connection with her people that Catherine of Aragon and Mary don't necessarily have so much because you know mm -hmm. they have the Spanish side um, and I think that's really important and I mean Elizabeth is hugely intelligent of course Henry VIII is an intelligent man but you know she's getting this intellect from both sides of her family Anne Boleyn is you know is very very intelligent um I think Anne is Anne's major contribution for Elizabeth is that she's clearly a presence a sort of shadowy presence in Elizabeth's life throughout her life um Elizabeth clearly thinks about her mother and I would say her behaviour is probably shaped in some ex to some extent by knowing her mother's thoughts and her mother's wishes to some extent. Certainly, she is proud to be Anne Boleyn's daughter, albeit that it is less trumpeted about than the fact that she is Henry VIII's daughter. But again, mm -hmm. the checkers ring really is the defining word on just what Elizabeth thinks about her mother. Yes, and I love that. I just saw it in the Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I exhibition at the British Library. And that ring is just so powerful. It's so tiny, but so powerful. So it's that's just a wonderful, wonderful example. Yeah. It just it just exudes power to me. I love that. That is that is really wonderful. And I love how you say that she was proud to be Anne Boleyn's daughter, even if it's in private, that wearing that ring and, and having her Boleyn relatives around her really does show us that. And I think that's a wonderful thing for us to think about. So if you were to have maybe one or two takeaways um, that you would really like people to think about with Anne or wonder about or um, imagine with Anne, what are a couple of things that you would like us to take away about Anne Boleyn? Oh, there are a few things. So I think my main thing and the thing I've tried to bring out in my writing, particularly on Anne Boleyn, is her humanity, is the fact that, you know, she is a very polarizing figure and remains so today. A lot of people love Anne. A lot of people hate Anne. I mean, I always say she's the 16th century Richard III, if you like. Mm. Um, she, gets mm -hmm. a, she gets a huge amount of love and hate. And I always think, actually, the truth is in the middle. Um, there are things she does that are really, really awful. And there are things that she does that are wonderful. And there are things that she does that are just ordinary. You know, she's going through her life. And I mm -hmm. think that is my takeaway. The top takeaway for Anne is see her as a human, see her as a woman going through her life. And she doesn't know how it's going to end. And the things she does are really, really remarkable. Because actually, apart from Henry's grandmother, Elizabeth Woodville, there hasn't been... Um, a post-conquest English woman who actually marries the king. Um, there have been a couple of English queens who've who've unexpectedly become queen through through a husband that becomes is unexpected as a king. But Anne marrying a king as an English woman is really really remarkable. She changes English and British queenship. That's a great comment, and there's some similarities in some ways between Anne and Elizabeth Woodville in a couple of ways. So that's a really interesting way to think about that. And how the whole idea of queen consort changes um, with Anne and 
some other, I mean, it seemed to put Henry on a path of choosing English women um, more often as his wife. So that's great. Thank you very much. And I love that humanity that she's a real person. And yeah, she makes mistakes and she makes good decisions just like we all do. So that is wonderful. Thank you so much. Now tell us what you have coming up and how we can follow you and what's happening. So, um, I mean, if you want to get in contact with me or kind of see what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis, then Twitter is absolutely your best bet. And I am E. Norton History. Um, Someone else had taken Elizabeth Norton. So I'm E. Norton (laughs) History. Um, I also do a weekly Tudor Tuesday seminar for context learning, um, which you can sort of Google that and have a look on if you're interested. And that's always a lot of fun. It's basically a topic that I find interesting. Um, Otherwise, I've got a couple of sort of television projects possibly in the offing and hopefully a new book sometime soon, although that's still at a very early stage. But um, it's always a pleasure to be interviewed on podcasts and I'm busily researching away. Oh, that is wonderful. Well, I'll have all these connections. Of course, I follow you on Twitter and it's fabulous. So I'll have all these links in our show notes, but that is wonderful. It's so good to be able to keep up and I um, can't wait for the TV projects and that new book. Hmm, That's good to know. I'll save a spot on my bookshelf right now and keep (laughs) waiting for that. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Elizabeth Norton, for coming and sharing with us these insights into Anne Boleyn the person, the woman, the the individual who makes good decisions and bad decisions and is playing in a really scary play. You know, it's kind of a scary game she's playing and goes all in in some really terrific ways. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and your insights. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of May's Focus on Anne Boleyn. I'm so glad you were here. If you are enjoying the podcast, may I ask a favor? Would you mind please subscribing, sharing with a friend, leaving a rating, and even considering becoming a patron? I so appreciate your support. And let's keep shaking up history together.